The Dial, a magazine for poetry, philosophy, and religion. Brought to you by the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. And so, with diligent hands and good intent, we set down our dial on the earth. We wish it may resemble that instrument and its celebrated happiness, that of measuring no hours but those of sunshine. Let it be one cheerful, rational voice amidst the din of mourners and polemics. The dial. dial. To abide by our chosen image, let it be such a dial, not as the dead face of a clock, hardly even such as the gnomon in a garden, but rather such a dial as is the garden itself, in whose leaves and flowers and fruits the suddenly awakened sleeper is instantly apprised, not what part of dead time, what state of life and growth is now arrived and arriving. Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1841. The Dial, Volume 1, January 2017. Dalliances with False Surmise. Edited by Morgan A. Brown. The volume is preceded by an inscription from Rainier Maria Rilke, 1875-1926, from the Book of Hours, Prayers to a Lowly God. Someone desired you once, which makes me know it is permissible to long for you. Though we may discard our search of old, it is like the mountain with its veins hiding gold, yet where no one wants to dig anymore. And where one day the river will wash it forth, the one mining deep amid silent stones. Though we may not like it, God grows. Proem. The bloodstained muses turned and long forsook the poet's pen. Chapman's old Grecian books by leaden canto sense have been replaced. Don Merrow, Milton, Chaucer, and Dante were melt for trinkets and for gleaming kind, as Rapsot's poem the profaned art divine. Swift on their heels, Ferreira's courtly bards, obeisance made at Duke Alfonso's charge and fence their papers for the learned Jake whose blessed republic knelt to Pluto Blake. Thence Spencer, Pope, and Dryden in their deaths revitalized blind Homer's choice of breath. And yet more cantos spun by Ezra Pound did far less entertain than did confound. The epic by the commonplace usurped. The death of classics moored the darker birth of self-romance where sanctimony mills betwixt each morphem and each syllable. Thoral formulaic, passe composed, with surf to poesy's infudated prose. 
The highbrow wits of both disgruntled mills now set their stores in worsted words and frills. For e'en a fleck-nose crowned a king of state, where sots are bays billed at the highest rate. Posy is mute, now bound and shelved in piles. Moth-eaten rags shroud Posy's coacher style, dressed down to fashions of the mendicant. And wit, the erstwhile fop, is frapped and whipped. Confessions found their place. The world was charged with blessing oafish rhapsodes, by and large, who proffered to the altars of their liege huge mounds of compost, decomposed with ease. The ancients and high moderns shake their heads. Quoth they, why did we toil? Was it for this? The bold confessors squint their drowsy eyes. Conscious in class, they just can't recognize their forebears for their toils. But they confess their sins and tribulations, nonetheless. A war is struck for nothing less than fate, and posies at the heart of the debate. The spears are cast over the vacant grounds of mulish Eliot's mythic compound. As such, outmoded verses, young and old. Hurrah, the greatest romance ever told. In Tempore Belli by Morgan A. Brown I have read of the Marchesan blossom, which clings to the autumn twig ever after it flowers and withers, and how desperately it persists, how it withers without falling, in a sense, collapsing back upon its calices to find itself in shadow of a shade, cast in the darkness of its parent tree. The heavens declared the glory of war, and history showed its handiwork, day unto day, while senators uttered speech and night to night volleyed knowledge. Hence, the heavens parted with a curtain of fire while the brimstone pastors preached, and reigned with an almost visible hatred upon the hapless tenants of foreign sod, in an age where wars are fought high in the heavens, no more by gods. Never again the old man's psalm sung each to each. No more a buckler burnished by the sun. No more big visions explained to the disbelief of Chaldean ministers. Never again the Sibylline prophecy and the horn of our salvation on a Cumaean papyrus leaf or a visionary tower leaning towards the stars. Never again 
the glory of war. King David's lyre is stilled as is blind Homer's cord. Lichens creep around the bowl where Absalom is hanging, and his upstart glory, a pall, now passes as a sort of transcendent shadow, dragged around an ageless wall, circumscribing the present. A kinder age was supposed to come to bear for each extinct, but misery seized the golden spokes and churned Dame Fortune's wheel. I see. Coming over its hump, our age. I see walls falling, and chaos in the streets. Yesterday, the mending of threads on an Abyssinian tapestry, and now a cluster bomb is falling. Plowshares lie encrusted in rust, abandoned, and the tillage untended by its usual master in a blasted farmhouse near Diala. Never again, a triumphal procession, ambling through the arches of Byzantium. But there are nightly prayers which are whispered over the corpses of the dead, who are yet unaware that they are dying, withering beneath these skies of fire and lead, which are falling. And the blood still fresh on these commended bones declare is ours, the consortiums of folly that were Greece. And the travesties of Rome. Before us goeth the grim-faced tribesmen, battle-hardened, bearing the black acacia box on tan shoulders, two cubits long, and laid with rings and gilded all without. They sway lazily to the left and to the right, and sing their tribe's sonorous song, jostling the sacred contents of their ark, still gasping from the recent rout. Onward they march towards the unknown destination, hidden from them in the darkening murk, and before them lies a world in desolation, where the shadow of their own souls bristles and smirks. I beg of you now, sing for me, you ballad spinsters, a happy psalm to mark this age of ours. Point out to me the glory. How the Hyoma months pandered and passed, and the chidden leaves slept where they willed, still cleaving to the vestiges of headstrong youth, perched as it were upon a deathly sill. Or sing how the threshing breeze benumbed the roots of every blossom still clutching to the twig. Sing of this, and sing no more the dirge of war, for we are withering. On a renewed sprig, withering, 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 but not falling.
Culture of Children by Troy Camplin. I've tried to find adults, but they all fled from college, work, and high schools. They're all dead, much like the gods of old. I find but puppy days, demands, and dread. There's no one left who's bold. We need to take our sons at age 13 into the terror forest, where we'll wean them from the sweetened milk and drum them into men, with virtues mean away from vice's silk. A ritual for daughters, too, to bring them into womanhood. We need to sing of love and due respect, responsibility that brings the spring of wisdom to reflect. And once we've brought adulthood back, We'll find behavior problems fade like mist. The mind, now cosmopolitan, no longer child-deaf and child-blind. Our lives can now begin. Flight of Western Youth by A.A. Learmont 1. My child, my child, you cannot rise. You've yet to eat your greens. Why have you that abhorred gleam within your morbid eye? You cannot rise. You've yet to eat your greens. And you have so much more to view within a world tailored for you, suited to your apt mind. My child, my child. You cannot leave. You've yet to eat your greens. Two. I've had my fill with all these greens. Ethics and philosophy. Metaphysics and ontology. Linguistics and etymology. And all those vapid greens. Politics and sexuality. Skepticism and doxologies. Factories and universities and all these soggy greens. I've had my fill to eat. Three. The child rises without ma'am's say and skips the path away. He bounds over the city streets and gammon tap the savage beat to pound throughout the midnight streets, each seedling shedding green. Yant the ashen walls and butcheries, past the law and civil liberties, 
Beyond the graying bergs they teem and howl for their release from all these vapid greens. The Thrush by Meister Nereus A spotted thrush renews its swarthy wings and stirs the azure heavens. There, the wind assumes the load. She scurries through the foam that fills the earth with drink and quaffs the loam. The Gourmand, a farewell redress, 20th of January, 2017, by A.A. Learmont. He made his toast to world peace before indulging deep in drink, then prayed for world hunger's sake. Meanwhile, he filled his dinner plate and sucked the marrows of public weal, discoursing o'er his loathsome meal, thought I. How much better we all would eat if we, like he, could dine on human suffering. Vol van tranen. Het huilen staat daar nader dan. Het gulle lachen van zo even. Een man heel oud en zonder ogen. Zit op een bankje in de zon. En als hij valt, dan blijft hij liggen. Als je lacht, hou dan. Van mij 
Dear Uncle by Chris Bacavis To begin with, I woke up thinking, man, this has got to be my lucky day, even though I was in prison for my birthday. And sure enough, my parole went through. It's got a stipulation on it, though. Can't drink no alcohol. So I have to stop drinking altogether, because they can make me take a piss test. I'm pretty sure, anyway. I think I'm going to stop drinking anyways, because all it does is get me into trouble. Going to see if I can get some government aid in becoming an underwater welder. A highly paid skill. That has always been my dream. Man, I can't wait to get out and start going fishing and swimming and things. I plan on stopping smoking. My asthma can't take it. Besides, I ain't getting any younger. The Man with the Flag Tattoo by A. A. Learmont The tag on his big left toe declared his name in full. Sam, as in Sam I am, green eggs and ham. And it left a blank space for his age, height, six feet. He had a single tattoo of a star-spangled banner flapping across his breast. White thickets of hair and strange little patterns to demarcate his fuzzy man tits. Wife? Unknown. Children? The information does not compute. Religion? Most likely he was a Presbyterian, for a little gold cross of cubic zirconium inlays and a circle around rests atop the star-spangled flag flapping across his saggy breast. Pete said he was old. Pete spoke of Sam in the police report like they'd known each other, he guessed, for something like years, with a certain measure of awe and respect. As if when Pete spoke of Sam, he spoke not of someone dead. But Sam didn't move if he could hear what Pete said. Pete confirmed that they were fine. Successful. Not at all inclined to these fatal devices. Ralph says that Sam didn't move even when Pete talked about him over his corpse and awaited the information from the pale-faced coroner. 
and Ralph knows better than John what it is that he now needs to do. To siphon out all of the red and replace everything inside with embalming fluid. Hooks, John says. The ancient Egyptians used enlarged fishing hooks to pull your brain out through your nose. John laughs, reading the short police report. Old man, John chuckles. Name Sam. As in, Sam I am, or green eggs and ham. They actually wrote that in the police report. And right here it says, Old man found dead. (laughs) No shit, Ralph cuts in. I can see that for myself. Found dead, John echoes. Boy, are you mocking me? Ralph's sarcasm drips. You shouldn't swear before the dead, John says. Fuck you, Ralph mutters under his breath. Found dead along the Vegas Strip with $5,000 in his back right pocket. (laughs) Just his luck. He came away to gamble away a wad of cash and ransomed his life away instead. Ralph takes up a knife and pumps the IV like he's going to carve and glaze a Thanksgiving turkey. Kind of ironic, ain't it? That's not the half of it, John continues. Casino said he won the money playing at roulette. Which casino? Says here, the Apache Heights. I know that place. Big Indian mother owns the joint. I knew him way back when, in grade school. Yeah, police report says old Sam here got himself into a fight, swearing to God of heaven above and all the like. Anyway... The cops threw him out of the casino for conduct unbecoming a grown American man like Sam. That's weird. Was he drunk? Says here, no trace of ALC found. Hmm, I wonder what chapped his flabby ass. Oh, people are funny like that, John says. They snap. Hair color, white. Volume displaced when placed into a vat of heavy water. Results... Inconclusive. I had a senile dog that went crazy like that. Name of Patches. What else does the report say? Found him in a dark corner of the city. Alone. Fully clothed. Unbruised. Sober. Still had his wallet on him. Not a dollar missing. A smile on his face. Like he played a game of hide and go seek and he'd won. Ralph gives John a queer look. There ain't no place to run in the world of mechanized streets. That is, perhaps, why he was hiding. Ain't nowhere to hide in the city of lights. John frowned seriously. Anyway, it's a sad tale to tell. Crazy old fucker found dead. That ain't sad, it's simple. We'd all be lucky to meet simplistic deaths. And I tell you what, I'd have found him. He ain't have a cent in his pockets. It's complicated, man. John said. He'd unshot himself. Suicide? I suppose. Ralph filed Sam's nails and applied the rouge until the dead man looked flush and neat as a drag queen. I had a near-death experience myself, John, not long ago. Really? Care to tell it? Ralph puts down his scalpel and gives his work a look. One night I drank me three swigs of embalming fluid. Seems like a stupid thing to go and do. That stuff could kill a bull with less than what you drank. 
Thought if the stuff could preserve a dead man for a hundred years, it could at least get me through my demise. Besides, my diddy drank worse stuff. Damn near paint thinner. Did it work? I'm still here, ain't I? But at the same time, I had to call the poison control center and have my stomach pumped. Nearly died drinking a preservative. And anyway, I was high as a kite when I done it. What's the ticket straight? Stupidest thing I ever done. At least you lived. Poor Sam here didn't. Found him with a loaded six-shooter, one in the head. Sounds like a game of Russian roulette. The other five chambers were loaded. <laughs> Odds wasn't in his favor this time. House wins. Ralph knew the tale and likely the man. You finished yet? Asked John. Just, answers Ralph. The litter screeched on its tracks. The man, worn down like a book in the rain, was filed away in the unmarked human cabinet. The service is on Sunday, Ralph says. Think anyone will attend? Not likely. Sam probably didn't have a lot of friends. He had money. But no time to spend it in. You're right, you're right. I reckon it really don't matter none anyways. Sam passed into a dark and foreign land, filed by name in an unmarked human cabinet, with a tattoo of a star-spangled flag still by Sam's loss of breath. Just one more drawer on a shut-up wall of the dead. Ends and Means by Troy Camplin The time of flames has come to make us burn. 
the poet speaks, we understand. We turn our words to ends. We must philosophize we know their meanings when their means. We are wise until we seek to know beyond the time the wood is used, reduced to beat or rhyme, from which arise the means to mean, a song upon the score to satisfy the throng. And thus we speak the truth and safely shock. We reap rewards and rarely taste hemlock. Proceedings by Chris Bacavis This morning, on a platform on the sands of the city, procession thrown open. Police hands, carriages, white gloves and robes who were kneeling in a most impressive prayer. The others decent, dressed in white trousers and brown coats, launched into eternity with different lanes and windows. An escort of the arts and parts, the indictment being read. Once tried before the high court of prisoners, all the coarse men board the schooner, walking across its calfskin platform. Lodged in due time by the arms of the vessel, the cabinet maker and ironmonger, the remaining fifteen who were called up, and the prisoners being asked if they had any concealment. Any clerks from the collectors of peace for the districts and counties? A haven outside the jurisdiction of the court that was set upon, hoarded, broken in the war of possession. Four barrels, the value of twenty dollars. Gold watches with goods, their chattels now in custody. The negotiations purchased and paid for. Some doubts on the manner of conspiracy. Cargo liner filled by numerous shippers, delivered and painted over silver waters. Counsel for the prisoner, informed of his right to object, authorities ancient and unenlightened. These circumstances enacted here.
Vaticinations of Berossus Preface to the Book of Caesar By Morgan A. Brown Oft was the hour his upright hand was raised, as if to say, The gods alone make sense of what unfolds and what they have ordained. But Aristotle questioned Plato's stance. Then why debate the logic of the soul? Easy was Plato's smile, but strained his voice. As slaves to reason, have we any choice? Plato supplied his pupil's answer. No. Soon by, they tread the lanes adorned with whores, but occupied with souls, truths, and such bores, did not regard the rouged up bell that sighed, hearing herself volleyed betwixt their minds, now bandied tween an argument, now proof, now cast away to tease unmannered youth. The love of wisdom and its famed amours have filled out fantasies for every age, till wisdom's pimped and pandered like a whore with little love to give. What's God has stained by use uncounted? How many's the street she's walked? I think of Aristotle's hot debate with Alexander on the Grecian state. But what's to say but that two peddlers talked? And what's to praise but that two tongues were twined and stretched the bell betwixt two lustful minds? All those outside the sovereign state of Greece are slaves by birth, the elder Philo preached. A greater truth the Macedon would find. The self-styled sage is wisdom's bitter rind. When Alexander campaigned through the east, through Xerxes' realm where Persian dreamsters scried, doubt thrust his mentor's quip from its high seat. For what brash slave would nay a tyrant's eye? Was Aristotle better than a slave? Was not the eye the tyrant's best defense? Could blind injustice graft a mindful man, or was the slave the patron of the state? How wished young Alexander for his youth, much better spent in Plato's mystic group than Aristotle's slave or Greek untruth. And thus the general swore a different suit, taking a Persian wife, forged Persian bonds, whilst Aristotle frowned with folded arms. Legends resurge, the heroes only change. One year a youth, the next senescent men. The only difference being in the name, a paltry thing. And still the poet's hand whirls like a dervish to unfold the tale. To learned eyes, each age invokes the last, and every step mucks back into the past. History repeats itself. To what avail? It was the riddle Alexander spent on every sage that to his grandeur bent, till Aristotle once again found grace in Alexander's eyes, and yet the taste of wisdom's physics soured his nightly mead, now poisoned by the self-same hand that feeds. I see an age, it's ours, as are the rest. I see Hellas remade through different means. A Grecian heart shall heave its foreign breast, with histories conjoined to fantasies. I see a youth in priestly garb that dons the laurel wreathed with common grass to frame the grandest being to ever stake his claim to fortune's best, and on that bloody brow shall trod the generations, each to grind the furrow wending round the tyrant's mind. I see an age, it's ours, as is its truth. I sift through ceaseless mobs of prostitutes to find the one I met last night and think each one farewells but never takes her leave.
Divine Knowledge by Troy Camplin Where Shelley's atheism would find faith today, no theist verse would find a home outside religious magazines. A wraith of narrow-mindedness erects a dome to make sure spirit feeling will not roam. The naiads, dryads, do not have a place to dwell. It cannot find the spirit's land. Our poets, editors, would find disgrace amongst their peers if life should not be bland upon the page, as atheists demand. Heroic gods could scarcely grace the page in anything but reference, irony. To dare be earnest, that would but enrage the village atheist. He'll make you flee from his harangues, his every empty plea. And God the Father, God the King, won't reign much more than human kings or emperors. And why would any atheist dare deign to deem a theme on him should open doors when they have existential verse on whores? The fuzzy deist God, the cosmos voice that sparked existence just to step aside, is still too much. In him you can't rejoice without sly ridicule. They won't abide until you have confessed that God has died. And that now leaves us with the blankest verse of petty observations, with our eyes cast down upon the ground to see what's worse in life and humankind, that but denies that we are anything but food for flies. But if you dare to lift your eyes, the glow will blind you right before you see the sun, and seeing beauty you will finally know what virtue needs and all the damage done by failing to aim high to reach the one. Tyrant of Samos, The Homily on Poesy, by Morgan A. Brown. One. There was a child who dreamt he ruled the seas, as Grecian tyrants kept each polis penned. The years would take the child, but not the dream, and years would lease the seas to his command. His daughter warned him off his grand designs, that though the kings of God should wash his feet, and though he be anointed by the sun, some gloom would pale the dream's last quickening. Two.
The gloaming disperses with a glowing light when Diane raises the old man's sight and leases to the shade of truant days a crimson strain of unremitting rays. He heaves a sigh into the gluttonous night, heaves one last sigh, and then sags in his pain. When falls the cankered virgin to the sea and baptized midst the currents of the main, the dawn first breaks her crimson light again. Zeus did indeed attend upon his lord, and scour him clean with pelting drops of rain. As did the sun anoint that cross-draped form, and parch the hammered corpse on its tea-frame. Four. Two vacant eyes now lured a beach, bereft of thought and memory and gaze upon time-shifting sands. A wave of foam with arms outstretched sprints hard upon the tapered shore, which drops within a league or so on two unfathomed shades of black, which bid that dauntless wave come back into the safety of the deeps. But it clings fast, unbound, and beached. Five. Somewhere amidst these surging tides, there is a place where fancy lies, bound up within the echoes of a shell. The scraps of tales on simpering children's lips, which bound desires in spiral ships and kept prize secrets penned within. Remembrance of a voice that called aloud and threw itself against the rushing waves, as if to loose that self upon the seas, curled in its gentle embryonic grave. A voice that tumbled through the driving sledge, persisted through the rolling undertow, still carried with the desperate transverse wings. These rings return full cycle. Voices scream from out vast nothings, heave beneath the prime, and haunt the silt beneath retreating tides. Awash with wares of ancients, luckless sands, new natives pluck from their nomadic sleep as memories attend the change of hands. Which is the conch that Polycrates clutched? And should I hold that shell to an adolescent ear? Would the waves yield up? The child's dream? Or the man's despair?
Poets are the hero fans of unapprehended inspiration. The mirrors of gigantic shadows which futurity cast upon the present. The words which express what they understand not. The trumpets which sing the battle and feel not what they inspire. The dark. The influence which has moved not but moves. Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. The Dial, a magazine for poetry, philosophy, and religion.